Hey, my name is Pastor Russ. If I've not gotten a chance to greet you and say hi, uh, hi, I'm glad that you chose to take some time out of your weekend to be here with us. Uh, I'm new here, so it's a great time to be new here as well, and uh, I look forward to getting to meet you and talk with you. We're getting ready for Christmas. We're going to have Thanksgiving before we get to that Christmas, but we're getting ready for Christmas. I'm a post-Thanksgiving Christmas decorator, a post-Thanksgiving Christmas singer. I, I like to thank God before I ask Santa. Just want to remind some of you, you probably want to come thanking God before you come asking Him for anything. It says we enter His gates with thanksgiving before we start requesting. He wants you request, but we want to thank God first. And so I want to make sure that we have a good thanksgiving, but we want to get ready for the Christmas season and this Christmas story that we are familiar with for many of us. Maybe you're not. We'll get familiar with it over the next several weeks together. But there's a theme that starts all the way back in the Old Testament because we have a God that's very powerful. In fact, he's way more able than you've given him credit for. Uh, he's got more ability and power than you've expected in his ability and power to be for your life. And one of my favorite parts and one of the reasons I'm a follower of Jesus is that God fills the entire Old Testament with prophecy about what he's going to do, and then he does it. So God will call his shot and then deliver on it in a way that we can impede, stop, or keep it from happening. In fact, the enemy has spent his entire life counterpunching at God, only to find himself every time he has thrown a counterpunch to get punched back with the fact that he cannot stop the work and the will of God from coming to fruition. And so God brings about this promise in Deuteronomy that there would come a day where he would take this people who were not a people, who were forgotten and enslaved in Egypt, and he would deliver them from their oppressor and give them a nation and make them a people so that they would be blessed to be a blessing to the nations around them. They would become an observable people who could uh, be an observation for the nations around them of the power of what God can do when he gets hold of a group, a community, and a people. A people that weren't strong in and of themselves, but were strengthened by the very power of their God who was in their presence. Now he says in Deuteronomy that he's going to at some point give them a king, and that king will come and establish a throne that will lead to the ultimate king, the Messiah, coming and establishing his reign and rule over Israel forever. Now Israel, in the end of Samuel's leadership as a judge, prophet, and priest, comes to Samuel worried about the transition that's going to happen. Samuel at this point in time is healthy. He's got many years ahead of him. He's going to live to the end of the life of King Saul. Uh, but they are worried about a transition that they can't control. They've not figured out how to trust God with what God has not asked them to fix today, so they're worried today over things that won't be fixed today because they want to fix tomorrow's problems in today's energy and resource, which never works. So are you tracking with me? And so we, we see this story where they demand a king. They don't defer to God. They don't seek God. They just demand that God do something. One of my favorite pastors is a pastor named David Platt, and he said the biggest problem in the church today is when the people of God try to do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. And that's what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 and 15. The people of God trying to be the people of God apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the power of God, and expecting it to go well. Righteous endeavors don't impress God. He doesn't need you and your self-righteousness to rise up and earn His favor, earn His goodness, and prove that you are His people. Satan says prove it, and God then calls us to just live in his sufficiency instead of trying to prove something. Whenever he comes to tempt Jesus, uh, when Jesus led off into the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, he says, if you are the Son of God, to Jesus repeatedly. But Jesus doesn't have anything to prove because he is the Son of God. You are the people of God. You don't have to prove it. 
In fact, when you rise up in yourself to prove that you are the people of God, that's when it goes really wrong really quick. So instead, we are to be a dependent people. We're to be a people that trust in, live by, and on the power and presence and purpose of God, on the promise of God in what we've yet to see, and on the faithfulness of God as we walk on the path to see it in its day. So we talked about the rise of the king, and the first king that came was a king named Saul. He looked good in parades. He was taller than everybody else. He was handsome, which in Israel's mind meant they would have the king that God had promised in Deuteronomy. However, In spite of the warnings of Samuel, Israel doubles down over and over again, and they make Saul their king, and then Saul doubles down on stupid. Anybody ever doubled down on stupid before? When you multiply stupid with stupid, you get extra stupid. You don't get a good result on the other side of that. And that's what happens with King Saul. King Saul then steps in, and he immediately overruns and oversteps his lanes. Let me give you two examples. Before a battle because he got impatient waiting on Samuel to come, and the people were getting disgruntled in waiting. He offered a sacrifice before God instead of waiting on him in 1 Samuel chapter 13, which was specifically prohibited of Saul to do. He directly disobeyed God. Samuel told him in that text that he had acted foolishly. But instead of learning, he continued to build a foolish legacy. He then disobeyed God when he was at war with the Amalekites, sparing King Agag. And let me be clear. Some of you may not like your name, but your mama didn't name you Agag, so be grateful. Praise God. So he didn't do with King Agag as God had instructed, and as a result, he took some of the spoils of war instead of getting rid of the spoils of that war and disobeyed God directly. In verse 22, uh, God, in communicating to Saul through Samuel, said this, Obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul thought that God would be amazed and wild at how good he had been how he had offered so much. But obedience wasn't offering some. Obedience was offering all. Obedience wasn't getting halfway there. It was getting all the way there. You see, one of the biggest hindrances to you and I fulfilling the call that God has on our life is that for many of us, we're good with 80% obedience, which is completely disobedient. 80% commitment, which is complete discommitment. I mean, your wife's not happy when you say, I'm 90% faithful. So what makes you think your God would be happy with 90% faithfulness? But for Saul, this was enough. He he was serving a God that needed a grandiose gesture, but not an absolute surrender. And at the end of the day, what I want you to understand is God is not looking for grand gestures. He's looking for complete surrender. Because it's only at the point of complete surrender that God can then do through you and in you what you cannot do in and of yourself. I'm preaching good. Y'all just being quiet. I don't know. Did y'all fall back? Did y'all lose an hour of sleep? What happened? Are all of y'all Gamecock fans? Is that what it is? I'm just kidding. I'm just, I, I love you. We're friends. We'll hug later. Well, Clemson stinks too. We won and we're not happy because we're spoiled. We're spoiled. So, so after a lot of failure, trying to do things halfway, God says he's done with Saul. And the Spirit of God leaves Saul. And we'll learn that he is tormented for the rest of his life because he doesn't have the peace that can only come from the presence of God. Now, how many of you have ever had a moment in your life, where you have felt extremely unqualified. Anybody been there? Like you looked at the responsibilities and you're like, oh, I'm an adult now and these are humans? Like they're, they're, like we made people. (laughs) Holy cow, we made, and and if we don't feed the people, they're going to (laughs) die. Or the police are going to have to come to, like how many of you ever had that moment? Maybe it was in parenting, maybe it's you got married, maybe it's when you got them bills. Because the credit card was interest-free for 18 months, and you got to month 20 and went, whoa, they rolled what? 
I'm unqualified to manage my... How, how many of you had that kind of moment where you just looked around, maybe at a job responsibility, you got an upgrade in your job, and you looked at all the people you're responsible for and all the decisions you had to make, and you realized, man, I, I don't know that I necessarily feel comfortable, qualified being here. I, I've been there. I feel that way a lot of the time, which may make you uncomfortable, but let me just go ahead and let you know that I don't feel qualified in and of myself to be your preacher. I don't feel qualified in and of myself to be the leader of this church. I don't feel qualified in and of myself to handle the Word of God. I need the Spirit of God to qualify and empower me and enable me to do what I am not in and of myself qualified to do. I've got pieces of paper on the wall that say I've taken the necessary classes to be qualified, yet I often still feel unqualified apart from the Spirit and the presence of God through the work that He's called me to do. Well, what's going to come up in this transition is a question of qualification. For the people of Israel, they felt like what qualified you to be in king was that you had to have a domineering personality and presence and outward spokenness that made people fear you or look at you in some kind of reverential way to think, oh, they're important. But what's going to come to the forefront is what God looks at people whenever he qualifies them, what God looks at, which is different from us. And so we come into a transition from the first king, Saul, to the second king, David, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David is the most spoken of character in the Old Testament. 66 chapters give us details and intimate details into the prayer life, into the mistakes and the failures and the successes of King David's life. He's tabbed as a man who is a man after God's own heart. But it's not a man after God's own heart because of his great success or because he's some supernatural version of a human that we are not. In fact, the takeaway from any of these messages, if the character is not Jesus, is not be more like them. You don't need to be more like Abraham, you're not Abraham. You don't need to be more like David, you're not David. You don't need to be more like Saul, you're not Saul. At the end of the day, all people other than Jesus don't look good when you look at the stories. It's only by the grace of God that any of us have hope, that any of us have forgiveness, that any of us have a second, third, fourth, fifth, and let's be honest, some of us a few thousand chances that God has given us. Amen? So, so don't ever think, I just need to be more like David, or I'm going to be a David. You're not a David. You're a, a Bubba, and you're from Woodruff. That, that's what you are, okay? And, and, and God's not running from it. He's not scared about it. Like, you may feel unqualified, and like you need to change your name in order to become qualified by God. That, that is not what God is into. Let's look at it, though. Let's look at the king after God's own heart that we're introduced to in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem and find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Now, it's interesting. There's a couple things that we should see that we've read here in this text. The first is that we're in a transition and God says, enough mourning. You've mourned long enough. And here's what I love about Samuel. Samuel didn't want Saul to fail. Some of y'all have wanted other people to fail and have gotten a weird sense of joy out of it when they did. Let's just be honest, right? Like, and we do this in America. It's like a, 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 a part-time hobby. We armchair quarterback the quarterback on Sunday. We overanalyze every politician's decision on, throughout the week and put up on Facebook how we would not have made the same mistakes if we were given the same opportunities. Like, there is an entire hobby 
that we make in enjoying other people's failures. It's, and you walk by magazines that sell this junk, and you read it still. You're like, I don't buy it. But you read it. You gave your mind space to read what was going on with Princess Diana's ashes and how there was some argument, you know, whatever it is, in the, in, the, in the shopping mall lines, all because there is a salaciousness and an attractiveness within the human flesh that, desoy, that enjoys other people's demise and disaster. That's not Samuel. Samuel's a man of God. He loves God, and he wants the best for the people of God. He doesn't want to see Israel suffer, and he doesn't want to see Saul fail or falter. And if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we'll learn that he's been in a season of grieving since Saul's failure. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king. And Samuel's response was, Well, I'm glad you figured it out because he's been hard to handle the entire time he's been king. I'm glad you got rid of this dummy who's been making... No, look at what Samuel's response was. I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved... And when he heard this, he cried out to the Lord all night. He couldn't sleep. That's the kind of grief we're talking about. I can't rest because it ain't right grief. You ever been there? Maybe you're there. I can't rest because there's not a new normal and I don't want this normal and it will never be normal unless this, that is back or restored. Or get, like, Have you ever been in a season of grief that it wasn't like a week and then you were okay and you could smile again, but you couldn't smile for a season? You couldn't laugh. You, you, you would watch comedy and everybody else was laughing and enjoying it, but you, there's just no laughter inside of you. You're, you're just numb. Grief is a part of life. You will have grievances that come with living on this side of eternity. You need to understand that. But if you are a follower of Christ, you need to understand that every emotion has its season. We don't run from the emotion of grief. We don't run from the season of grief, but we don't let the season of grief become a life of grief. There comes a point in time where you have to move forward, and it's okay to move forward. The, the tears have been shed. The grief has been experienced, and it's time now to trust, even though it's not right yet, that God will make right with what has yet been restored. There comes a point in time where even though you may not have hope, on the Word of God, you walk in obedience and walk away from what was a good season or a season of disappointment where you didn't see what you thought you would see, and you trust God with a new season that you don't know how you're going to experience it, walk in it because you're just tired from what you've been through. I was trying not to stick out in a coffee shop this week while I was studying for this sermon. Any of you ever have moments where the Holy Spirit is just all over you and you know you're going to be weird and you can't hide your weird? Okay, I, I experienced, it may not be you, but I experienced this. I'm sitting in the coffee shop, I'm studying this, and I'm like, man, God's kind of tough on Samuel, rebuking him that his season of grief is over. And I had stayed on that verse for like half an hour. And this young couple walked in, and I felt the Lord like grab me like, pay attention. I'm like, no, I don't want to be weird today. I just want to sit here, drink my, you know, cap of frappa, huh, and, 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 and just, I just want to sit, like, I, I don't, I just want to finish my sermon. Like, I got a sermon to preach, Lord, and the Lord's like stirring me, and like, all of a sudden, this other guy, because the coffee shop was crowded, sits down at my table. He starts wanting to talk, so I pull my ear things out. He's a preacher, of course. 
at another church. And so we start talking, and this couple's now listening to us talk, and then they're getting married, we find out, and they start talking to the preacher at the table with me, and they're like, oh, you go to such and such big church, and yada, 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 oh, we're thinking about coming to visit such and such big church. I'm like, oh, isn't that cool? <laughs> you going to go to their church? Okay, praise God. <laughs> Not my responsibility. And, and then he leaves, and then the uh, fiancé, the guy gets on a business call, and I'm like, I'm completely off the hook now. God, I ain't got to say nothing to him because I don't know what you were going to do. I don't know what was going to happen. I just know I felt you pulling me towards him. And then the girl looks at me and is like, so where do you preach? And I tell her I'm at Four Points and all that. And she's like, oh, I've heard of that church, the little church on the 101. I said, like, yeah, we're the little church on the 101 because <laughs> everyone loves being called the little church on the 101. <clears throat> <clears throat> and so we start talking, and so she texts her fiance. She has to leave. She texts him and says, talk to the man. And so he comes over and sits down a little bit later, and he starts telling me a story, and he had been in ministry and uh, served God faithfully, and it had come to an ending. It wasn't the season he had thought, and for two years he's been grieving. And I'm looking at this text, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I look, and I said, man, I, I, you ever heard the story where Samuel's grieving over Saul, and God says, time for grieving's done, move on? And he said, yeah. And I said, I think I'm supposed to tell you it's time to stop grieving, and he loses it. I think some of you need to hear the time for grieving is done. There's a time and a season and a place where we grieve, but there's a time where we move forward. Move forward. It's okay. God's got you. You may be empty. That just means you got more space for him to fill. He's got you. So we come to this point where Samuel is grieving, and he's mourned, and he's overcome with it, and God looks at him and says, move forward. And look at what it says. He says, I've rejected, verse 1, him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. So Samuel is dejected, Saul has been rejected, and God comes and says, now I'm about to bring in a new king who's been selected. So God's not done. It's, it's not good. He's still at work. So he says, I've rejected him, but I'm going to send you to anoint a new king. Now, this will be the first of three anointings that David will experience. There's a private anointing in Bethlehem. There's a public anointing in Hebron. And then there's a final anointing when he's acknowledged as king over all of Israel. So if you follow Israel's his, history, the, the kingdom was divided into two between Saul and David. And then it was restored later after Saul passes away and David is made king over all of Israel. Now the word anoint, and this is why I'm spending some time here, it means to smear with oil liberally. So when you and I, maybe you like you got anointed at church once and someone got a little thing from Lifeway and they and they went whoop and it was precious. That that's not a biblical like version of that. It, it was a demarcation that you have been set apart for a significant public service for the purpose of God. And so when you would get anointed, they would take a entire uh, vat of olive oil and they would pour it on you liberally so that there was no uh, way that you could look at that person in that moment and not know that they had been marked for the work of God. My point in bringing it up is simply this. You and I have a demarcation as followers of Jesus. You've been marked by the Holy Spirit. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And it's no longer you who should be determining what is possible and impossible with your life because now the only question you should be asking is what's possible with Christ in us? If Jesus is in us, what could he do through us? If Jesus is in us, what glory could he bring for his kingdom out of our life? And so the, the, the playbook, the, the qualification, 
implications, they change when Jesus steps in because you've been smeared, you've been demarked by Christ to be distinguished for his purpose. Paul goes so far as to say that you now have, you've now become in Christ a temple that carries the spirit of God everywhere you go. So be careful what you do with your spirit. What your hands used to do to dishonor God now have been used as hands to give God honor and glory. The body that you once used perhaps to sin against God now is a body that God has made his home with inside of you. So you have been anointed and distinguished by the Holy Spirit for the work of God, just like we see David being demarked by the Spirit of God and the anointing that comes from Samuel. Now, by the end of verse 1, you've heard me say it, Saul is rejected, Samuel is dejected, and the son of Jesse is going to be selected. That's what's going to happen. And some of you may be thinking, I am Saul, I've gone too far, I've had multiple opportunities, I've wasted too much time, and I have been rejected. I want you to pay attention to how much I comes in those kinds of statements. How much of that kind of thinking deals with what you think you can do and what you think is possible for you in your future because of what you've done. And let me remind you, just again, God doesn't start with you. You're not the main character in the story. Abraham character in the Old Testament, dies with one son in the promise, yet he is promised to be a father of many nations. So not everything that God lets you see, not everything that God calls to you is something that you're to walk in in your generation. David's going to later ask God if he can build a temple, and God's going to tell David no. Not everything that David saw was something that David walked in. Instead, David stored up supplies so that Solomon could build the temple that David wasn't called to build. And so some of your calling may deal with the fact, and some of the thinking that you may be dealing with right now may be coming from the fact that you're thinking, I'm a main character and I've ruined it. Don't give yourself so much credit. God is so much bigger than that. God owns time. God has the ability to uh, make things happen in months that you thought would take decades happen. God has an ability of accelerating his purpose in a season that comes out of you thinking that it's never going to move forward. And so what we see happening in this story is uh, this dejected person that's kind of given up in Samuel who doesn't think that God's going to move the story forward and he's moving it forward. And I I just want to communicate to some of you that God wants to move your stories forward forward. One of my favorite uh, points of, uh, around this comes from some language that Paul uses in the New Testament. Paul over and over again says, you are adopted sons and daughters of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says this in verse 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure to do it. He says it over and over again in Romans that you are adopted. Now, many of you hear that and I've talked to many people who have been adopted And there's a sense of, like, never belonging. We're in the family, but not quite in the family. And some of us have that feeling, that kind of attitude of, I'm the saw, I'm the sort of here, but not really accepted. I'm the sort of called, but not really called in the family here. I'm just not that person. Well, when you understand why Paul uses the word adopted, it changes everything. In Roman culture, there was a belief that if you had a kid by natural means, like you and your spouse, you know, Uh, in the jungle. Okay, Um, if that happened, I know, it's not funny, Uh, but if if that happened and the kid came out crazy, you could disown him because because in Roman belief, you didn't know what you were getting into. Okay, so that's a cultural belief in what Paul's writing. Like if the worst of the gene pool comes out and some of you are like, this is a good idea. Because that person's crazy. Like, I don't know. They got all the crazy of the gene pool. So you could disown them, according to Roman culture, 
if you had them by natural means. But if you adopted them, the Roman law stated, you could never disown them because you knew exactly what you were getting into. What's Paul saying? What's God saying, I think, through Paul? I, I believe the idea is this. You may think you're soft. You may think you've done too much, gone too far, run too far away, wasted too much time. God knew exactly what he was getting into when he called you. There's no, no give backs. There's no halfways. There's no like, well, we walk for a season with God, but then we screw things up. No, no, no. That's not the way God works. He adopted you. He knew exactly what he was getting into, and he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is the beauty of what we have in the gospel, is that God receives us knowing what we're getting, knowing what he's getting into, even though we don't know what we're going to do with it. Now look at verse 2. It says this, but Samuel asked, how can I do that? How can I go and anoint this new king? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you. Can we just pause for that moment and say, praise God. It's a biblical word. Next time you use it and you get rebuked for it, it's trying to be biblical. It's... The Lord replied, and, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord had instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? A couple quick things here. Uh, in verse 2, uh, he's, Samuel recognizes Saul is off his rocker. He's gone mental. When you have a person that's on the path of foolishness, Anyone that's in the wake of the fool's path becomes a part of the fool's demise. That's why you've got to pay attention to who you call friend. Some of you have made friends with the wrong people. You live life with foolish people, and then you're constantly making up for their foolishness in your own life. And so Samuel recognizes there's a clear obedience here. I need to fill this horn of oil up, go and anoint the king that God will show me. But, but Saul is a fool and he could do something insane or crazy. So he recognizes that there's reason to be fearful. In order, and if you want to know this from a geographical standpoint, in order for Samuel to get from where he's from, he's got to go through Gibeah on his way to Bethlehem where the setting of the story will take place. Gibeah is where Saul is at and where Saul is from. Chances are when Samuel walks through or by Gibeah, someone's going to tell the leaders, which will tell Saul, that Samuel's on the move, and Saul being a foolish person, and there's reason to believe that he'll be foolish because after David's anointed to be king, he hunts David actively for years, trying to work against the work of God and the will of God to his own demise as a fool. So, so notice that there's reason to fear, but verse 4 tells us that in spite of the fear, Samuel did as the Lord instructed he trusted that God would protect him if he was walking in obedience to do what God had called him to do. And so when he arrived to Bethlehem, little town, big story. Bethlehem is the backwoods of nowhere. Be uh, Bethlehem is the, uh, what's the place over here that's got the moonshine place? Okay, that place. I don't feel comfortable saying that from the pulpit. <laughs> it, it, it's the small little area. You're out of it before you know that you're in it. There were too few people in Bethlehem to even draft for the army. 
So, I mean, it's this little town. Yeah, there's significant history that takes place, place there. If I'm not mistaken, the story of Ruth and Boaz takes place in and around Bethlehem. And a thousand years from the day that Samuel goes and anoints David to be king there, on a starry night, choir practice breaks out in a field near Bethlehem where some angels show up to some shepherds and say to those shepherds, uh, 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 glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to men. For tonight in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, is born a Savior, a Messiah, the promised one of God. So in insignificant places, God continues to show up and do significant work. And some of you may think that there's areas of your life and parts of your story that are insignificant, but we serve the God that does significant things and insignificant things. I, I, I feel like I need to say that before I move on. Okay, he arrived at Bethlehem, little town, big history. The elders of the town came trembling. Why? Well, Saul is mental, Samuel's at strife with Saul, and they've likely heard about it, and they don't want to get put in the middle of this, one. And two, if you read chapter 15, Saul doesn't take care of King Agag, but Samuel does, and he does it in a quite efficient and violent way. So they come trembling, do you come in peace? And he says, in peace I come. Verse 5, yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. The first king was a looker. He was taller than everybody else. He was handsome. He was a looker, as my grandmother would say. Right? And so naturally, Samuel has a predisposition to what a king is supposed to look like if they're going to be a king. A king should be tall and handsome. Eliab is tall and handsome. So Samuel has a standard of what he thinks a king is supposed to look like, and to him it's the looks, the outside, the appearance. But notice what God says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. It's an important lesson. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When you see the word heart in the Old Testament, it means the very center of a person, the very, the very core of who a person is. It doesn't necessarily mean the organ. It means that out of it, everything else is affected by it. So if the heart's bad, then what you'll see on the outside will be bad. Many of us only pay attention to looks. Like whenever we're dating, whenever we're looking at an opportunity, we look at what it looks like on the outside, but we don't look to God who sees on the inside whether or not it's an actual good opportunity. And so we get trapped in pyramid schemes or things that seem too good to be true, and then what's on the inside comes out, and we recognize that what was on the inside was there the entire time, we just didn't see it. How many of you have been there? You see, God looks in a different place first. We first look at looks. How do I know that we first look at looks? How many of you looked in the mirror before you came out today? How many of you? You looked in the mirror at least once. How many of you walked by that mirror in the back and you're like, okay, all right, maybe today's the day. The average person spends three and a half to five hours a week looking in mirrors. Why? Because we have been predisposed to the understanding that initial judgments will come off of looks. They look, they size you up, they make a decision as to what you can or cannot do. Here's what you need to know. God doesn't start there. 
He starts below the surface. Why? If you go into the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, he's speaking kindly to some Pharisees. That's the top part. You brood, you brood of snakes. Thanks, Jesus. Most of y'all only know, like, nice Jesus, not turn tables over, make whips, and call people snakes, Jesus. How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you see. What matters most is not what you see. You can be fooled by what you see with people. On your first date, you were the best lying version of yourself you could be. You sat down, she's like, I love crocheting. Me too. I love crocheting. It's all me and my buddies do. We just crochet for the orphans. Making bonnets for them and stuff. We just love it. What do you, you want to crochet tomorrow? I'll come crochet. You get married and he's like, he never crochets with me. He lied. That's why. Looks can be deceiving. Right? Yet, yet for many of us, that's the only prerequisite to whether or not we're going to hang out with them. That, that's the only way it works. If they look good and they say they're Christian, then it must be Christian and it must be good. Not the way God works. Not the way God works. No, you need time, you need success and peril that they go through that surfaces what's in their heart. Don't, don't assume that what you see is what actually is there. Oftentimes what you see is a best version of what they hope to be there one day but can't be there apart from Christ. Some of you are like, oh, that's sweet. Pretty on the inside. That's what, we, that's what my mama used to tell me. You just need to be pretty on the inside. That's why I'm single. I'm pretty on the inside. No, what's on the inside comes out. If you want to make good long-term decisions, you've got to look below the surface. You've got to ask God to give you eyes to see what you can't see when you make decisions like this in authority and leadership. Samuel starts looking at what's the standard looks. Oh, you know who looks in the mirror more than anyone else in the world? So you're like Americans. We're bashing on Americans. No, it's Italians. We're bashing on Italians. Don't. I love America. Anyway, it's just a random fact. Found that out. You can Google it. Samuel... It's kind of awkward now. Samuel, <laughs> Samuel started with looks on the outside, number one. Number two, Jesse, in verses 8 and 11, we're going to learn he has a pre-built standard for what a king is. Let's look at what it is. In verse 8, uh, then Jesse told his son Abinadab, after Eliab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, verse 9, Jesse summoned Shemiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the Lord's chosen. In the same way, all seven sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Hey, I've got most of them here. It's like 99%. He says, there still is the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down until he arrives. All right, so Samuel has a predisposition of what a king's supposed to look like. A king should look the part outwardly. Jesse has a predisposition for what a king should look like. A king should be an older, seasoned, experienced son. Not the young runt in the field. Not the unexperienced, underutilized, uh, mistake-making, uh, curious George-acting David. If God's looking for someone qualified, look at Eliab. If not Eliab, look at Abinadab. If not Abinadab, look at Shemiah. If not Shemiah, then look at the other brothers. But it won't be David. He's too young. He's too inexperienced. He's not qualified. You see where this is going? 
Here's what you need to know. If you're under 25, we don't expect much from you in America. We expect you to act like an absolute fool. We just don't want you to die. And we have underestimated your potential. Not, not your potential because you're special and you're a snowflake. You're not a snowflake, okay? You're, you're, and, and to be honest with you, like we're not as special as we like to make ourselves out to be. I just, I just want you to hear that. I, sometimes you just need to hear it. You're not as special as everyone's trying to pump into you. Like You don't need more self-confidence than that. You need some God confidence, and that's what I'm trying to give you. And here, here, listen to me. We like to tell you that you need to run the path of a prodigal before you can be a son. You've got to go and act foolish and live in the far-off place and room springa and act crazy and sow your roots. And then one day you'll wake up, probably when you have kids, and go, dear God, don't make them like me. And then do what the generation that's come before you does and come to church and go, please fix them, instead of understanding that it started with God fixing you. And so we'll tell you, we'll tell you, that you've got a place in church, but it's just not your season yet. That you're the future of the church, but it's not right now. And let me be very clear. We serve a God that calls and uses people who, from the world's view, are underage and underqualified, and he uses them for significant things. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this is 2 Chronicles chapter 34. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, it says Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Many of us would read that in a read-through, and we would go, oh, an eight-year-old became king. What did God do? Did he take a nap? Did he misplace it? Because surely God would not have it within his sovereign will that an eight-year-old would step in after two generations of pagan kings who had led the people of God away from worshiping God into idol worship to bring an eight-year-old in to say, let's put it on his back to bring them back into worship of God. At At eight years into his reign, when he was 16 years old, we're told that Josiah led a nation that had been worshiping the bell priests and the bell idols for uh, two centuries with two grandfathers coming from a broken, messed up family back into worshiping God. Don't tell me God can't use and call you. Don't tell me that your broken family background means that God can't do great things through you. Josiah came from a broken background and he led his entire nation back to God as a teenager when we would be telling him just try not to break all the commandments. Are you kidding me? You look forward into the New Testament, God calls and uses the young. What do we see with the disciples? Every one of them but Peter were teenagers. They were rejected, poor, coming from the backwoods of nowhere, teenagers that didn't have high prospects of being used for great kingdom impact. It's not like people were sitting around going, man, Andrew, Philip, James, they're going somewhere for the kingdom of God. No, they were overlooked because they were young. They didn't have the best positioning in life, yet God had a plan to use them. You see, we look on the outside first, and then as soon as we move from the outside, we do this fun thing. Here's what's going to happen to you if you don't listen to me. Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to wake up one day, and you'll move from being too young to being too old. It's crazy. You're too young. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, you're probably too old. When was my prize? When was I going to have my window? You see, Jesse brings every son because culturally it's what made sense. The oldest would be first. The oldest was going to get the majority of his inheritance that he would leave behind anyway. So of course it would be Eliab if God was going to use anyone in his family, but not the least, not the runt, not the youngest. Yet that was God's plan the entire time. See, God doesn't start with the outside or looks, although Samuel starts there. And God doesn't start with age to determine qualifications. Now, I'm not saying we should, you know, when you're not ready to drive, hand you keys and say, go for it, may the Spirit be with you. But, but let me be very clear by God's grace, and I, I, want, I want to be honest about this. 
I, I was a commandment-breaking hellion in my teenage years, wasting life away. And in my teenage years, God found me. I don't understand this. I went from playing Xbox for hours and trying to be a gamer or some stupid like celebrity that people would worship to being called by God in my teenage years. And, and li- listen, while my friends were out drinking and doing what everybody else was to do, I was preaching to trees and shampoo bottles because I had a call on my life that I couldn't get away from. Don't tell me God can't use you in your youth. Some of you are like, you're, you're a young preacher, but you just have a season in about you. Well, I've been doing this for a long season. I started at like 17 and 18 years of age preaching. I, I've been doing this half my life. Don't, don't tell me God can't call and use you. Don't, don't tell me that God doesn't have a plan for your life. You see, you may think you're underqualified. You may think that, that God doesn't, uh, can't, can't use you for great things until later in life. But by 21, I was getting on airplanes after class was over on Fridays in college to go and preach the gospel to kids in Virginia and West Virginia and California. And God was at work. And was it pretty? No, my sermons were terrible. The first time I ever preached, it went five minutes in length. I threw up before I preached. I took my shoes off because God was making me do it. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to quit college basketball. I didn't want to lay aside foolishness. I didn't want to lay aside a good time. But you've got to understand that sometimes if you want to make a difference for the kingdom of God, you've got to determine sometimes, do I want a good legacy or a good time? Because you sometimes can't have both. You see, some of you right now, listen to me, you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s, and you've had a good time. And by God's grace, you can have a good legacy. He can do something great in and through your life. Because God starts at the heart. He doesn't start with looks. He doesn't start with past failures. He doesn't start with age. He starts at the heart. Now, some of you are like, well, that's a problem because I'm rotten to the core. I'm rotten in the heart. Well, that's why you need the gospel. (laughs) Because in Ezekiel, before we ever get to the New Testament, before the sons ever born on that starry night in Bethlehem, this was the promise of what would come. I will give you a new heart. So so you don't need a medicated heart. You don't need a patched up heart. You you don't need a little bit more morality or to become a little bit more of an ethical person. You you trying to fix this has not gotten us anywhere good. So God's not asking you to identify, I need a new heart, let me fix it this morning. That that is the worst takeaway, the most anti-gospel takeaway you have. Instead, go to the one who can give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart. Why? I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out, this is the problem, your stony, stubborn heart. Anyone ever experienced a stony, stubborn heart? Like I wrote in my journal this week, today, God, I just feel indifferent. And I've learned as a follower of God, those are the scary days. It's the days where I'm not desperate for Jesus, where I, I don't wake up recognizing I'm really simple and I really need Jesus, or I, I, can, I know God's near and I, I know he's near. I, I, it's the day of indifference. It's kind of in the middle and lukewarm where I'm most afraid of now because that's the day where the stony, stubborn heart comes back that doesn't want to bend a knee to God, that doesn't want to crack the word open, that doesn't want to pray before God. So I wrote in my journal, like, today's scary because it's easy to be stony and stubborn on days like this. Maybe you've had some of those. God said, I'll take the stony and stubborn heart and I'll give you a tender, responsive heart and I will put my spirit within you. I love the, word, the wording there in the Hebrew. It's, it literally means eradicate. The idea is that at the core of you, there's something that's got to be eradicated before we'll see anything different coming out of you. So he, God doesn't say, Here, like, here's some rules 
and here's a religious way, be a better person, try harder. Trying hard doesn't work. You have to be eradicated at the core. That's the gospel message. Jesus came to take what was at the core against God so that he could put what was for God in there. That's salvation. Some of you, your whole life, you've, you've just only thought of Christianity in terms of rules and right and ritual. What you need to understand is that Christianity is about a miracle that Jesus offers to apply and bring to you where he takes at the very core what is plaguing you out and gives you something that you couldn't have. A heart that's set to love and worship and desire God. A heart that's filled with the Spirit of God. Not so that in a moment you'll necessarily be a completely different person uh, visibly, but so that in a moment you'll be a completely different person positionally before God. He takes what's unrighteous and makes you righteous. He approves and then he qualifies and then he transforms you to become the person of God that you've been called to be. And for some of you, look, you've gone to church your whole life and all you've gotten is right and ritual. Do more, try harder, be this. This is not that kind of church and this is not that kind of word that comes in the word of God. The gospel is you are lost. You go prodigal anytime you put your hands on it. But God knew exactly what he was getting into when he sent Jesus to die for you. He's not looking for a thank you. He's not looking for you to pay him back. He's looking for your surrender. He wants to put his spirit in you so that he can begin to change your desires, change your heart, and transform your very character. And it may start subtly, but the Bible tells us in the Old Testament not to despise small beginnings because out of small things, God does significant work. And out of small change on the inside, there comes significant transformation on the outside. And some of you, look, look, at first service, four people, when they heard that, went, I need to give my life to Jesus, and they gave their life to Christ. Amen? It's your turn. It's your turn. God looks at the heart. He's not diagnosing the outside. He's not impressed by you cleaning it up and not sinning for four hours before you came to church to make yourself feel like you could be presentable here. He knows exactly what he's getting into, and he's saying, hey, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke and burden are light. And he offers new life that can only be given by the sacrifice of his son. So here's the deal. Jesus died to make payment for your sin and wants to give you that life as a gift of grace. And if that's a gift you need to receive, I want to invite you with every head bowed and every eye uh, closed around this uh, auditorium and online to just pray this prayer. Pray this prayer. The prayer isn't magical. It's not some seance but it's you declaring from your heart, Jesus, I'm hearing what's on that screen and I'm saying, I need you to do that in me. I need you to eradicate this stubborn, stony, set against you, can't get it right heart and give me a new heart. Fill me with your spirit. If that's something you need to do, would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, I believe that you died to forgive me of what I've done. But I believe that you also rose to deliver me from the very person I've been. Forgive me of my sins. Eradicate my stony, stubborn heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and be my Lord and my leader. 
you just prayed that prayer with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just let me know, hey, Pastor, today I stopped playing games. I'm not going to do the religion thing. I gave my life to Jesus. I meant it. Would you raise your hand and let me see that hand? Praise God. Awesome. 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 Hey, if you'll look at me, listen, we're going to worship God. We're going to respond. Their prayer team's going to be here. If you just prayed that prayer, I saw two hands go up. Praise God for that. Um, yeah. We're going to be here to pray. If you prayed that prayer, your next step is baptism. We're baptizing next week. Yeah. And so if you just made that decision and you need to get baptized, I know that it may be difficult, but we want to talk with you about what that looks like. We want you to do that. We want you to take that next step. So as we stand to our feet, if you need to pray, you come and pray. If you need to be baptized, if you need to give your life to Jesus, you come forward. Our prayer team's here. But you do what the Lord leads you to do. In Jesus' name, amen.